As we continue to worship, would you join with me as we seek the Lord to illumine and to open our hearts and our minds as we approach his word this morning. Let's pray. We thank you for the promise of your word, that your word does not return to you empty or void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. And so, Lord, it is with great confidence that we come and we open your word to worship together as brothers and sisters united to Christ and therefore united to one another, to hear what you have to say upon us, to receive how you act upon us, and to ask that you would be our teacher, that you would give us understanding, that Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our heart that we may see Christ and glory in him. Father, thank you for your word and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, we are continuing our Advent series this morning, looking at various passages through the book of Revelation, and this morning we are looking at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Please hear the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
We've been looking at various passages from the book of Revelation this Advent season. If you remember, Advent is the season, historically, it is known as the beginning of the church year. When we do two things, one is we take a look back. We take a look back to the coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, revealing God in both his glory and grace, bringing salvation, mercy, and grace and love to the earth. And then we also look forward. We look forward to the second coming of Christ, where all wrongs will be righted, everything will be made right with the completion and the consummation of all things. When Christ will come and bring final judgment and final salvation. And during Advent, which is kind of the living in between the times, so to speak, we recognize and we live, this fuels our prayer, it fuels our Christian life, as we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds, there's a sort of waiting, an anticipation, a longing for the time when Christ will return. This morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 7, and the theme of Revelation 7 is found in verse 10. If you look down at verse 10, where the multitude that no one could count could number. I know some of you were kind of dozing off when I was going 12,000 from this, 12,000 from that, and all of that kind of stuff. But after that you get, after this I looked, and a multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. Notice the text that no one could number. Here's the theme. What do they say in verse 10? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. There it is. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation, rescue, deliverance by God, a gift of His mercy and grace belong to God. It originates in His mind. It's executed by Him. It's initiated by Him. It's carried out by Him and is for His glory. Salvation is ultimately about grace and mercy being shown to undeserving sinners like us. We need grace and mercy. The question is, do we understand the depth to which we need grace and mercy? It's one thing I've been preaching so long, I have a file of illustrations and quotes and different stuff. All I know is I didn't come up with this myself. I have no idea where it came from. So I've hit, I've hit the age where I'm now finding things and go, I'm not going to plagiarize. I'm attributing this to whomever but I honestly can't, t- I just know it's not mine. But it's a poll taken years ago by George Gallup. You know the famous Gallup polls? Okay, couldn't tell you what year this was taken, but it was a Gallup poll that was taken that said 42% of Americans, so almost half, said that they were very nervous, very anxious, very worried, concerned about whether God, and of course the poll didn't say what was your conception, what was your view of God, so... Don't read too much of it, into it, but very concerned about whether whatever God they believed in them would forgive them or not, would accept them or not. And of course, as I was reading through, one of the things I read is, one of the ironic things about this is here you've got almost 42% who are the most worried, the most concerned, and someone commenting on this said that the ironic thing is that these are probably the people, the people who are least sure, are probably the people who have, relatively speaking, led the least selfish, the best sort of life. The illustration that was given is, say, take somebody like Abraham Lincoln, who, relatively speaking, again, lived a good life, was a good man, and knew and was concerned about his flaws. 
So I'd compare that with others, you know, the Hitlers of the world and the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world that don't see their flaws and thus don't see their need for mercy. And so here's the great irony this person's bringing out of the Gallup poll that almost half the people are worried do not know whether they're going to have mercy from God, probably live the best sort of lives, and the people who don't feel the need, who don't have it weighed upon them the need for mercy, aren't even aware of their flaws and don't care. Application question for us, are you aware of your need for mercy? Are you aware, and not just I believe once and that's it, that's fine. Are you aware of how desperately we need the mercy and grace of God? Because you've got laid out here the gospel story. Revelation 7 is all about the depiction of salvation. And it's all, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is a gift of God's grace and mercy. And we see this from two perspectives in this text. We see, first of all, that salvation is ultimate security in the face of judgment. And secondly, that it's ultimate satisfaction in the face of suffering. Security in the face of judgment, satisfaction in the face of suffering. Verse 1 begins, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, and they were holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against the sea. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels, so these previous angels, who had been given power to harm earth and sea. So the one angel now is crying out to the four angels, and he says, do no harm to the earth or the sea or the trees until. So in other words, God in his sovereignty has sent the one angel to speak to the four angels. He says, no more calamity, no more judgment until something has happened. The text tells us what's happened is until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I won't go through and read the 12,000s again. Now, contextually, let's take a look at this. We saw last week, let's put Revelation in its context. We saw last week how Revelation 4 and 5 are foundational for the rest of the book of Revelation. That in Revelation 4 and 5, John is given a vision of heaven. In other words, he's transported in the spirit. We call that the prophetic vision. And he's given a glimpse of history and the unfolding of the decrees of God from God's vantage point, from God's perspective. And the main question, he's handed a scroll, a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, and no one is able to break the seal. So this question is laid upon him, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And chapter 5 dealt with this question of who was worthy, and then after being revealed as it's the Lion of Judah who conquers, and then turning around he sees that that Lion of Judah is actually a lamb who was slain. We now see how history unfolds. Chapter 6 goes through a series of judgments leading up to the consummation of all things at the second coming of Christ. And Revelation 6 is the opening of the first six seals. And it ends with a question, verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The great day of the wrath has come. Judgment is coming. And who can stand in the face of judgment? It's the question that each of us has to ask. That's why we need mercy. And chapter 7, see chapter 6 is the first six seals. Chapter 8 
is the seventh seal. Chapter 7 is kind of an intermission between the two acts. It's an interlude between the opening of the sixth and seventh seals where John receives a vision answering that question of chapter 6, verse 17. Who can stand up under the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? The answer, of course, in one sense is nobody. No one can stand under the wrath. No one, none of us can stand under the judgment and wrath of God. Only those, in chapter 7 answers that. Only those who were sealed in Christ. Only those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7 gives us the answer to the end of Revelation 6. And there's practical lessons in this for us. Vern Poitras, a commentator I'm reading on this, he points out in his commentary that in the midst of suffering and calamities, which characterize an indefinite period before Christ's second coming, calamities that occurred during the Roman Empire in which these Christians lived are occurring now in our times and will occur all the way up to the second coming We as followers of Jesus are exhorted to put our confidence not in our worldly situations, not in our circumstances, but in God. His person and his promises, specifically his promise of salvation. Now let's apply this for a second. How easy is it for us to do anything practically, functionally speaking? I'm not talking about where we intellectually put our faith, but functionally I'm talking about how we live. How easy is it for us to put our confidence in anything but God? I mean, think about it. You're presented a problem. What's the first thing you do? i got to fix the problem. How often do we really go to the scriptures that say things like, be still and know that I am God? Or be still and wait patiently? I mean, that is one of the most difficult... I want to be told what to do and how to act. Give me the list that tells me this is exactly what I'm supposed to do, and I could follow that. I love that. Tell me do nothing and wait. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. It's one of the reasons I try to stay so busy. Or think about the wisdom literature, Proverbs chapter 3. I'm sure many of us have memorized Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Put your confidence in God. Now, there's a second part to that, isn't there? What does the second part say? Lean not on what? Your own understanding. Have you ever stopped and think about what that means? Your own understanding. What makes sense to you? What seems right to you? What seems practical to you? Simple, common sense. What does the wisdom literature say? Be suspicious of that. Suspect yourself. Don't put your confidence in that. See, this is what Advent is all about. Advent is living between the times where God is act and he will act again. And we are waiting. We are lamenting. We are longing. We are anticipating. See that, and what are we anticipating? We are anticipating the fullness of salvation, the kingdom of God to fully come to the earth. See, the salvation that is shown here is shown from two different perspectives. Commentators point out that verses 1 through 8, with the reading of the 144,000, you've got the numbering of the fullness of God's people, linking God's people with the heritage and story 
of Israel. Then in verses 9 through 17, we see the fullness of God's people that no one could number. This international scope and character from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. A vast multitude. And Dennis Johnson in his commentary points out, he says, as back in Revelation 5, as Judah's lion is proved to be the slain lamb, displaying royal power through the weakness of his sacrifice. So the flock that he protects, the flock that he seals, sounds like a very precisely numbered, exact, exclusively Israelite army, braced for battle, but then looks like a countless international crowd celebrating a victory already won. He writes, just as the images of the lion and the lamb carried distinct and complementary messages about Christ and his victory. So the two images in Revelation 7 enable us to see the church from complementary perspectives. The people of God's covenant arrayed for battle and the peoples of the world redeemed by the Lamb and already celebrating his victory. See, in verse 1, the four angels are being told, hold, hold back the wind until all those who have been sealed... And you ask, what is the sealing? The sealing, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sealing is actually God's stamp of protection and ownership. Now, we have to be very careful here when we say protection. It's protection from spiritual harm, not necessarily all physical harm. Even the rest of the book of Revelation is extremely clear that there will be suffering for Christians, for some even to the point of death, for the stake of their stand, their faithful witness to Christ. But if you're sealed by Christ, you are sealed by him and for him, which means there's actually an implication for our discipleship here. That implication is we don't belong to ourselves. We are not our own. If you've been sealed by God, you've been sealed by him and for him. We do not belong to ourselves. That is, we live not unto ourselves, we live unto him. We live for his glory. We're not under our own control. We don't call our own shots. We belong to him if we've been sealed, but that means something extremely good and extremely freeing. Because I want you to think about this for a second. This means our security. In the face of judgment, In the face of the question, who can stand under the great day, the great wrath of the Lamb, our security, our victory, our conquering is not dependent upon ourselves or our performance, but is totally dependent on God and his grace and his faithfulness. We don't seal ourselves. He seals us with his spirit. He puts his stamp of ownership upon us. Who can stand under the great wrath of the Lamb? Those who have been sealed by Christ and by the Spirit. Brings us to our next point. Those who have been sealed in the face of judgment become satisfied in the face of suffering. Look with me at verse 9. After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here in these verses, we see the fullness of God's people. Described from one perspective in verses 1 through 8. Now they're described from a different perspective. Verses 1 through 8, this very precise, exact number fulfilling the story of Israel. Now you've got this international character and scope. This is the fulfillment or the climax or the finishing of the story of Israel that whether we know it or not was prophesied often, was the actual fulfillment, was what the story of the Old Testament, kind of a story, the Old Testament you realize is kind of a story without a finish, awaiting its conclusion, awaiting its finish. The promise that was made way back to Abraham That through him, through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Think about some of the promises of the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 2, a messianic psalm where God proclaims, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Here's God promising the coming of a Messiah, one being sent. And what is the vision of that Messiah? God promises him, ask of me and I will make the nations, every tribe and tongue and people and language, to be your inheritance. This international fullness, the whole people of God. If you look with me down at verse 14, they are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. Now, I know you want me to answer that question, don't you? We've heard a lot. We've read a lot about that great tribulation. What exactly is the great tribulation? Many see this as a final period of intense persecution and suffering that is given after the church is raptured. So if we're part of the church, according to this perspective and interpretation, we get to escape this. And then there's this intense persecution and suffering just prior to Christ's second coming. Now, I have to tell you, I wish I could be in line with that particular interpretation. I would love to escape. I am one who loves comfort and pleasure. And I would love to be able to escape that. But as Vern Poitras rightly says, tribulations for Christians occur throughout the entire church age so that the whole age can be characterized as one of tribulation. We live, what is Advent? It is a living between the times. 
where Christ, by virtue of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, is reigning. This is that figurative millennium reign. He's ruling and reigning now. The church is on the earth, and what are we experiencing? We bear witness to Christ and his rule and his glory by our sufferings. That's kind of some of the meaning behind some of what I consider to be some of the mysterious verses of the New Testament. You read Paul, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in terms of Christ's sufferings. And at first glance, you go, what's lacking in terms? Well, obviously, Christ's sufferings, there's nothing lacking in terms of the unique, once-for-all, redemptive suffering of Christ. He died once for all for the sins of his people. But Paul is saying that Christ is still, mysteriously, by virtue of his union with his church, the communion of saints that Bill read for us in living church, by virtue of the fact that we are united to him, we are actually filling up by our sufferings in his flesh what is still lacking, that there is still a filling up of Christ's not redemptive sufferings, but sufferings that bear witness to his glory through our sufferings. And so what is the comfort? What is the comfort that's promised here? Well, the rest of verse 14 says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our comfort is the promise of our redemption, our justification, our salvation in Christ. It is being the gift, being given the gift of those white robes of purity and honor and cleansing and being declared right in the sight of of God that are ours, not because of anything we have done, but because solely of what Christ has done. See, this is the climax of the story of Israel. This is what was promised by the prophets. We can go back to Zechariah chapter 13 that says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See, our comfort is the promise of the gospel. The question is, how much do we value the gospel? See, this is why the application, where is our confidence? Are we looking for our problems to all be fixed? Are we looking to fix or have solutions to everything? See, our standing in Christ as justified sinners allows us to be comforted and satisfied in the presence of God. That satisfaction in the face of suffering. It's a satisfaction that, yes, will not come in its fullness till Christ's return. Will not come to the consummation of all things, but in the communion of saints, in our worship together, in our fellowship together, in our times in the word, in our times in prayer, in our times being together, we get a taste of it now. We get a taste of being sheltered by the presence of God, of being shepherded. Do we not say now the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Do we not appropriate that promise some now? That he will guide us before springs of living water, that in the face of suffering, we are still guided to fountains of living water where we find an element, a taste, a taste of peace, a taste of purpose, a taste of 
of strength. Justified sinners and only justified sinners can have the hope of the new world, the new order of things, anticipating Revelation 21, when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one, asks this question. What is our only comfort in life and death? And it answers it this way, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. Think about that. That our only comfort in life and death is that we're not independent. That we don't belong to ourselves. That we belong, body and soul, in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I'll close with this. I love how Dennis Johnson puts it. Response to the sixth seal being opened and the terrifying preview of final judgment and the desperate question, who is able to stand? These visions assure the lamb's flock that nothing in the present or the future will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. That those marked as God's treasure by the seal of his name, are secured and sheltered from the burning wrath to come. What is our comfort? What is the promise? It's not that we hold on to God, but it's that he holds on to us. That he has sealed and secured us and will satisfy us, yes, even in the face of suffering. Father, may we live under the guarantee, under the promise that it's not the level of confidence we have in you, but it's your holding on to us. For he who began a good work in Christ Jesus will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you for that promise. May we take comfort for it. May it comfort us even in the face of suffering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue to respond as we have our time of our pastoral prayer. Would you pray with me? We begin, our Father who art in heaven, by virtue of our union with Christ, you've given us new life, you've regenerated us, you have justified us, and you've also adopted us as your children. Now we don't say my Father or your Father, we say our Father, that we belong, that we are your family, that you have adopted us and brought us in and made us heirs. And then we ask and we say, Father, may your name be hallowed, so may we live unto your praise, unto your glory, to the praise of your glorious grace. Hallowed be your name, your being, your identity, who you are in your holiness, in your goodness, in your truth. And we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, we would henceforth be willing and ready to live unto you. Because we are not our own, we have been bought with a price. So we belong to you. So Lord, may we individually and corporately live to do your will, 
not in order to be justified, but because we are justified, so that we would freely love you and love one another. Father, we ask that you would give us this day our daily bread, and we recognize that that daily bread, that which we need to nourish and sustain us, is the physical gifts you give us, so we thank you for our food and our shelter and our clothing and all the temporal blessings, and we also pray for spiritual bread, for spiritual food, We pray for those who are hurting, those who are suffering. I pray for Bill and Lois Kelly this morning. I pray that you would give them daily bread to nourish their souls, to comfort them with the promise that you will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I pray, Father, for the family of Dr. Sproul. We don't pray for Dr. Sproul as we know he has heard those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we certainly pray for his wife, his children, his grandchildren. We pray for his family and we pray for his church family. We ask that the promise of salvation would give them strength and would comfort them. We pray for any of the rest of us who are hurting, who are facing uncertain times. We ask, Father, that we would be comforted and sheltered by your presence, that the hope of the gospel, the hope of a new world to come, would strengthen and renew us. We pray, Father, for our forgiveness as we forgive those who have hurt us, And we pray for our holiness, that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We pray, Father, for those of us who work in various ministries of the church. We pray, Father, for our missionaries. We pray for the work of both local and global missions, that you would keep them from harm, from spiritual harm, that you would keep them from temptation, that you would protect them and their families, help them to walk with you. And we pray for all of us that we would live unto your glory and honor and power. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.